You're listening to Train Healthy Cops, where we talk about mental fitness and mental fitness tools for cops and their agencies. And I'm your host, Gentry Giles. Today, we are going to walk through the Train Healthy Cops Resilience Roadmap, which is a free 20-page workbook that you can get at trainhealthycops.com. For this episode, I'm going to explain what the Resilience Roadmap is, and I'm going to walk you through the exercise itself so that you could listen and follow along to complete the roadmap. So the Resilience Roadmap is a practical and extremely effective tool for building mental resilience in the people that take it seriously. So if you're in law enforcement, you've heard the word resilience thrown around. Now, this episode is going to be different from what you've probably heard about resilience. So, so much of the mental wellness industry tells cops what to do when they're already falling apart. After something terrible happens, if you're spiraling out of control, you can reach out for help. Quote, heroes need help too. And we'll talk about the word heroes in another episode. But what doesn't get discussed are the things that you could be doing before you need help to make things easier for you when you do need help. You may already know you need some kind of help, but you don't even know where to start. So if you're like me, you want to know what you could do to help yourself before you're in a total tailspin. So if you feel like you want to know what to do before you need help, or you know you need help, but you don't know where to start, this episode is for you. Now, I believe that so many officers are desperate and starving for legitimate wellness resources because we've depended for a long time on the government to provide those resources. And frankly, it's, it's very hard for the government to provide good wellness resources for a number of reasons, and we'll discuss that later. We're going to discuss the practical steps that you could take to build resilience in your own life. And with the Resilience Roadmap, you can sit down and work on these actionable steps today. This is not something that has to wait for a scheduled appointment You don't have to call a doctor and you don't have to have an emotional or a spiritual experience to discover these things. All that's required of you is to be honest. But first, before you just go along with me, why should you listen to me? Who is this guy talking on a podcast uh, explaining this to you? So I'll give you two reasons um, that that the Resilience Roadmap I've created is worth your time. Uh, My name is Gentry Giles and uh, I've been a police officer. Uh, my father has been an officer my entire life. I'm happily and strongly married to a police officer. So I've seen law enforcement from almost every angle. It could be looked at, uh, from shootings, fights, hostage rescues, domestic violence, death, suffering, department politics, and betrayal. I've had my fair share of the traumatic incidents. And to put it lightly, I was not prepared. I was not resilient enough for the things that I saw. And I experienced the fallout of not being prepared. Of the things that I've learned over the years to build resilience, I continually thought, why wasn't I taught this before? Why didn't anyone warn me about what I might go through? And the second reason is that I didn't invent the things I'm about to share. So the things that I'm going to teach you, these are not, uh, I didn't invent these. After my critical incidents, I felt like I was on my own. And I began to search for resilience resources for police officers. And at the time, I was very disappointed to find that there were, there were almost none. So I turned to reading books and researching from sources that weren't actually meant for cops. So the solution 
for becoming resilient that I created was taken from the wide, wild world of psychology, therapy, and wellness. I took what was helpful and I left what was not. And I created this plan that's tailored specifically for police officers. So some parts of the wellness world were just not helpful for me. For instance, uh, journaling was not particularly helpful. So many, for many officers, the common recommendations like meditation or journaling simply don't fit their personality or their style. So I took the wellness practices that are useful for cops, people with our personalities and temperament that want something practical and created the resilience roadmap. So go to trainhealthycops.com, download the roadmap, and let's work through this thing together. And first, let's start uh, with why government agencies are having a difficult time. Uh, providing these resources. And I mentioned that earlier. So here we go. Uh, As we know, the government has its very own way of doing things. And sometimes that doesn't always create the best product for the consumer. So the first reason is because you don't really need resilience until it's too late to start it. This is, it's kind of like a parachute. If you need one and don't have one, you're not going to need it again. But this is where rock bottom comes into play. Another way to think about rock bottom is the pain of staying the same versus the pain of change. So if it's more painful to change, you won't. And if it's more painful to stay the same, you'll change. So being at rock bottom means that it's more painful to stay the same. If I keep doing what I'm doing, if I keep living how I'm living with the people I'm around and the places that I go, I will keep feeling this pain. And the only way to relieve the pain is to change. So rock bottom is where many people find life-changing experiences. And that's because they're finally motivated to change for the better. So if you find the resilience roadmap silly or not helpful, the reality is that you haven't come close enough to scraping rock bottom for these things to become important because the things in the roadmap are what are at the bottom of what you believe and what you think and how you act. So what I'm about to share with you is a plan for being resilient in the darkest times. Anyone who's gone through sufficiently dark seasons or suffered enough will be very familiar with these concepts. So if you're lucky enough to have not gone through such dark times, just know that doing this now will prepare you for the darkest of possible days. And not only that, but it may even change your perception of what suffering and darkness are. So that's the first reason it's hard for government agencies is because you can't really get it until you need it. And so it's hard uh, to prove that Uh, you have it until you demonstrate that you had it when you needed it. So that's the second reason it's difficult for the government to provide resilience training is it's hard to prove that you can impart resilience to someone else. The government is not going to purchase and provide training to their officers unless they can somehow demonstrate or prove that their officers benefit from it. That's why in most law enforcement training at the end of the course, you have some kind of practical assessment to prove that you absorb the information. So like a test, a project, or like a practical demonstration. Uh, So it's just so hard to prove that you can impart resilience to someone else. Uh, It's much easier to say that recovery is resilience because recovery can include policy procedures, go buys, best practices. Uh, This can provide evidence that your agency is more equipped to respond to a critical incident like debriefings. Your, your agency has a policy 
for a debriefing, they can say, see, these are our procedures. When something bad happens, we do this and this improves survivability or recovery. And so if they just call that resilience, then now they have, then now they have resilience practices when in fact those are recovery practices. And so it's very hard, very hard to prove that you created resilience in someone else. And it's even harder to prove that you could do that in a classroom. So obviously recovery programs are required. They're very important. And proper recovery from a critical incident can indeed build resilience for the next difficulty. But that's like saying, I'll become a better baseball player with every game I play. I don't need to practice. No, the games are not practice. Practice happens before games. So saying that uh, going through the thing will make me better at it is just a fallacy. So now we have the difference between recovery and resilience in mind uh, and kind of what the hangups are for government agencies to give us this. Let's define resilience so that we know exactly what we're talking about, because I've, I've already said it a hundred times in this episode, and I want to define it really in two ways, and that's what it is and what it is not. So we're going to kind of contrast resilience and recovery uh, here. So the dictionary definition of resilience is the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficulty. The first part, withstand difficulty, is when things get difficult, you don't change. Your mindset doesn't change. Your mentality is prepared enough that you can continue to live like you usually do during the difficult time, whatever it is. So you, I mean, you may practically have to change things. For example, a water leak means you can't use your kitchen sink for a couple days. That's a practical change, but you as a person won't change because you were resilient enough to withstand the difficulty of a leaky kitchen sink. And we've all met people that fall apart, even at the smallest issue, like a leaky sink. So they are not resilient enough to withstand that. Now, the other part of the definition is to recover quickly from difficulty. Recovery is simply returning back to a normal state after you've been removed from it. Recovery is the process of seeking help, processing your thoughts, emotions, etc. So the longer that takes the less resilient you were for that difficulty. So if someone says they're going to provide resilience training and they immediately start talking about briefings, decompression, peer support response, critical incident, stress management, etc., they're talking about recovery, not resilience. Again, resilience is a quality that is held before an incident and tested during and after. So with this definition of the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficulty, we can agree that resilience is in fact a skill. And because it's a skill, you can have more of it or less of it, and you can intentionally increase or ignore resilience. So now that we have a clear definition that resilience is a skill, we need to then map a path to get more of it. We want to develop the skill of resilience. So let's imagine for a second that you are in charge of creating a character in a movie and the character needs to be resilient, patient, and strong. What kinds of things would you have that character go through in order to achieve those character traits? In order to be resilient, you might put them through difficult things. In order to be patient, you'd make them wait. In order to be strong, you'd give them difficult things to to bear. The reality is the 
growth generally only comes from times when we either voluntarily or involuntarily go through something difficult, like working out. You're voluntarily going through something difficult. Or, you know, someone gets sick in your family, you're involuntarily going through something difficult. And as we go through difficult things, recover and process, we gain more resilience, patience, and strength. So we're going to voluntarily adopt some problems so that when we don't get a choice but to have problems, we're ready. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to walk you through the Train Healthy Cops Resilience Roadmap. Again, it's a free tool that you can download and print from trainhealthycops.com. We're going to walk step-by-step through the roadmap, and it can be done in one sitting. The roadmap, uh, you get it printed out and follow along. If you want bonus points, you can do this with your spouse, a friend, or a group. So to understand resilience, one of the easiest things to do is look at times in history where people had resilience. Just look at other examples. And generally, we're looking back in the past. uh, And so historical events where we find resilience the most is often war or really even atrocities. So an obvious example that stands out is the Holocaust. So there was a man in the concentration camps named Viktor Frankl. And when I say in them, he was a victim. Victor was a psychologist, and thankfully, he was a good writer. And during his time in the concentration camps, he watched countless people suffer, be tortured, and die. But he also paid particular attention to the people who seemed to successfully withstand the horrors of the Holocaust. And when he was finally free, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he details some of the observations and conclusions he came to after watching people withstand and even grow inside the Holocaust. After his experience in the Holocaust, he also developed a type of therapy called logotherapy, which just means meaning therapy. His book and his therapeutic method asserted that the most important thing to humans, the thing that would get them through even the darkest times, was a deep sense of meaning. And at the time, there was another psychologist named Sigmund Freud who was writing and asserting that the most important thing to all humans was pleasure. And Viktor Frankl publicly disagreed, saying that pleasure was what men sought whenever they couldn't feel a deep enough sense of meaning. So the reason I was so drawn to logotherapy is because it's practical. It outlines things you can actually do that'll give you a deep sense of meaning and make you more resilient. There is very well done research that has concluded people who have a deep sense of meaning in their life are more resilient through loss, pain and suffering, They're less likely to turn to substance abuse and generally feel better despite negative circumstances, which is exactly what we want. So the roadmap began as a practical application of logotherapy in my own life. And logotherapy states that in order to achieve a deep sense of meaning, you need three things, three critical ingredients. The first is a task or objective that you're working on that requires the best in you. And the next is a deep understanding of unavoidable suffering. And the last is a community that loves and cares about you. So in order to achieve these things, I put four steps into the roadmap. The the entire overarching idea of the roadmap is to begin with the end in mind. Ask yourself, what do you want at the end of your life? What would you like to have happened to you throughout your life? And just like the weatherman might forecast the weather, we're going to backcast your life. So a weatherman would look forward to the future and say, 
this is probably what will happen based on what we have now. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what we want to happen and then ask, what do I need to be doing with my life for that to come true? So we'll clarify that and then we will work backward from there to see what you can be doing personally in your daily life to achieve that desire. And the first step, step one of the roadmap is write your own eulogy. So if you're a police officer and you've not confronted the thought that you're going to die someday and you may die doing your job, well, now's the time. Uh, And frankly, you should have thought about this sooner. And so now is the time to consider this. And the reality is one of the only certainties in life is death. You're moving toward your own end every day. And we want to live intentionally. So writing your own eulogy is a pretty old practice. It's not uh, It's not new. I didn't come up with it, but it's extremely effective at helping people gain a sense of meaning. It has been used uh, in all kinds of therapy, even for like CEOs and business leadership to maintain clear decision makings when things get tough. It's a very popular exercise. So what's a eulogy and, and what are we doing? Well, on the day of your funeral, someone will have to say words about your life to a bunch of people who came to your funeral. And that person's job is to summarize your life and defend the fact that your life was important. And if you want to have an important life, if you want the things in your life to be meaningful, you need to decide what you would need to have done and what your life would need to look like for it to be meaningful. And the only way to know for sure that when you die, you'll be happy with what you've done is to clarify that now and work toward it. So to write your own eulogy, imagine how old you'll be when you die. Uh, The average life expectancy in the U.S. is 77. And obviously there's some difference between men and women, but in general, you can get to 77. And if you want to make it 80, just to make the math easier, uh, or if you want to be more generous and optimistic or less, you can do that. But write a realistic number of how old you want to be when you die. So take the age you are currently and subtract that from the age you want to be when you die. So that's the amount of time you have left on earth. So if you want to live to your 80 and you're 40, you got 40 years left. You're halfway to the end. So find that number and decide how long you think you have left until you're done. So your eulogy, write it as if you're speaking about yourself at your own funeral. Don't get weird and try to predict the exact way you're going to die or things like that. Just write what you want said about you at your funeral. And this is a time to be bold, dream big, and be specific and write exactly what you want. Remember, you're dead. It doesn't really matter what other people think about you at this point. So don't write what your spouse wants for you. Don't write what um, you know that that mean voice in your head thinks. Don't try to you know appease your parents or or peers. Write what you want. And if you want to pause this podcast and start writing, now is the time. If you're following along and you want to fill in the blank, go ahead and hit pause. I'll give you a second. When you hit uh, play, we'll continue on to the next step. Okay, now that you've completed your eulogy, I hope that there's a difference between the way your life is now and the way you would like it to be in the future. Uh, That doesn't mean everything is wrong now, but it means that there are things that need to grow and improve before you die. So the next step is to clarify the milestones along the way. So if your future looks different than today, according to you, 
on the next page, you're going to find a 10-year milestone sheet and a five-year milestone sheet and then a one-year. And they contain different categories of your life. Each box, uh, write what needs to be true of that category for you to be on your way to your eulogy being true. If you wrote your eulogy as if you had 40 years left in your life, what would your life need to look like in 10 years for you to be on the way? And then you'll do five years and then one year. So what this does is show you the things that you may need to change or you may need to work on starting now that would lead you toward a meaningful life, what you've already described as a meaningful life. And you can see as the years progress how you might need to grow. And obviously you can redo this exercise throughout the years to update things. Things change. You can't predict everything. Uh, you know, if you achieve a goal sooner than you thought, you might have to change things. Uh, you know, obviously life happens. And so this might need to, to play uh, alongside your life as it goes on. But uh, this is just a way to exercise looking forward and seeing the difference between what you want and what you have and where you're at. So I will give you time to fill these out, the three milestones, 10-year, 5-year, and 1-year. Go ahead and write what your life would look like if you were well on your way to a meaningful death. And I will pause here. If you're following along with the roadmap, uh, you can hit pause here. I'll give you a second, and then we'll continue on with the next step. So now that you've looked at your milestones, there's probably things about you as a person that need to change before you can achieve those milestones. Some things just aren't going to happen unless you either behave a certain way or you adopt certain character traits. And so our next exercise is what I call a vices and virtues audit. And now this, uh, while it's not a new thing to just consider yourself, I do think I haven't seen it anywhere else. So the vices and virtues audit, as far as I'm concerned, um, I came up with that name, but, uh, this might be the most important part of the exercise. So the reason is, if our ways to feel meaning are, one, important work that requires the best in you, two, a loving community, and three, an understanding of suffering, the common denominator in all of those things is you. And so in order for you to achieve your eulogy, to make the milestones on the way to your eulogy, and to experience joy through all of that, you're going to need to change. So this is a part of the exercise where we will begin adopting problems voluntarily, like we talked about earlier, so that later problems that we take on involuntarily won't seem so bad. In the vices and virtues audit, you're going to list the top five vices that you have and the top five virtues that you have that you need to attend to. And so this is where, when we talk about resilience, many things come up. We will get, uh, you know, you should work out, you should eat well, you need to rest. These kinds of things that are, you know, what some people would call self-care or just really that's just being a healthy person. But uh, this is where those things will go. So if you're thinking, well, is he ever going to talk about working out? Is he going to talk about, uh, you know, eating well or having, not having horrible friendships? This is where that goes. If you are not exercising at all, or if you eat uh, horrible food constantly, these are vices. These are the things that you know they're clearly getting in between you. And so the vices, uh, they're all the stupid and bad things that you are or that you do that if you change them, things will get better. So vices could be anything. Like I said, it could be uh, not working out. It could be laziness. It could be 
tardiness, or it could be even worse, you know, deep sins like alcoholism, compulsive lying, anger issues, pornography. Uh, it could be anything along that scale, but you probably know what you're doing or not doing that are vices. So there's at least, there's at least five that you have that are just wreaking havoc on your life and the lives of the people around you. And if you can't think of five in your life, this is a perfect time to begin looking at yourself very closely because I promise you there's at least five. And if you can't think of five, you can simply wait until the next part of this exercise and it will help you find them. Uh, and then same thing with the virtues. So the virtues are the things that you're particularly good at or gifted in that if, if grown, if uh, increased, things would get better for you and the people around you. And the reality here is that there's something that you're good at or gifted in, whatever it is, you need to admit it and begin taking steps to get better at it. The world desperately needs you and your gifts to participate and work actively. The things that you have, the gifts that you've been given, the talents that you harbor, the I'm serious, the world desperately needs. By not tending to these things, ignoring them, or letting your vices drown them out, you're robbing the world of great blessing. These gifts are things that could probably be improved upon, and by reducing your vices and increasing your virtues, you can become an active participant in creating the life that you wrote down in your eulogy, creating a community that is amazing and loves you and is supported, and understanding that when you suffer, it is to push your growth. You're going to experience deep, deep meaning by knowing how you fit into the story of a meaningful life. So I'm going to let you write down your vices and virtues. If you're following along with the workbook, uh, pause here and I will pick back up uh, for the next exercise. Okay. After completing an exercise like this, you'll be better at observing how you contributed to problems around you, how you could help solve them. Uh, this will also generate a level of humility that'll give you immense hope, really. It's common to hear things like, um, you're perfect just the way you are, or you shouldn't change for anyone, which th that's just a hopeless and terrible thing to tell someone. If you're perfect just the way you are, and you have caused some of the problems in your life, that means there's nothing you can do to improve the things around you, and that you are hopelessly subject to all the problems that you're causing because you're, you're as good as you're going to get. You're doomed to continue to live the miserable situation you're in. However, if you admit that there are problems in your life that are your fault, or at least the result of some of your traits or in part your fault, then there's hope in the fact that you could do something that would help in some way. So you have room to grow and that's good news. Now that you have your vices and virtues in hand, uh, the milestones along the way, and you have your eulogy for the last day, only one thing remains to be done, and that's community. So set up a lunch or a coffee with someone that you think cares about you enough to look at your roadmap and give you their thoughts. Ask them to look over your vices and your virtues. And if you couldn't think of five vices or five virtues, they'll probably tell you exactly what you've been missing. This is especially powerful 
with a spouse to demonstrate to them that you're willing to grow and change. And once they've given you their initial thoughts about what you've written, make a blatant ask for their friendship along the way in your growth. If this person is already your friend, you can simply ask them to keep you accountable to some of the things you've written. If they notice you start giving in to one of your vices, they have permission to call you out. And if you're ignoring or sleeping on some of your gifts, they should poke you and tell you, get back to it. We need that. And you're being lazy about it. This exercise wins friends. These are the types of friends that last forever. These are true friends, friends that can look at the darkest recesses of your heart and still be willing to help. Friends that know the good and the bad about one another and are participating in each other's lives for the better are immeasurably valuable. If possible, have them also complete a roadmap. Both of you should do it. Completing it individually, but sharing with a small group, uh, you can do it with a spouse, coworkers. It can be wildly powerful. Never underestimate the power of being open and honest with people who care about you. It's one thing to have friends and family around you that want the best for you. It's an entire other thing that they know what's best for you and they know how to communicate with you and they know that you're willing to receive their support and they know what kind of support you need to get what's best for you. Imagine going through a critical incident. Maybe it's a, um, a fatal crash. Maybe it's something to do with um, children or a shooting or a violent attack. And you know already the exact places that you're going to fail or that you're gifted, the things that you struggle with, the things that you're good at. And everyone around you knows all of that. And you know all of that about them. Critical incidents become stepping stones to a meaningful life. They become gifts because as things come around and friends and family understand one another, then you can support one another. And that just becomes a way of becoming stronger rather than another notch in the belt, another reason to drink, another reason to stay up late at night, another reason to be angry. Those critical incidents become the fabric that build a strong community and strong people. Obviously, the practical and even the physiological burdens may still remain from critical incidents. I'm not saying this is going to cure you of struggling through something hard or even the moral pain of seeing or knowing things that we go through that we feel are wrong, but a deep sense of meaning, a clear path along the way, a community that loves you and wants the best for you. It can make you unflappable as those things burden you, as you struggle through, you will be truly resilient, truly resilient people have these things in place. So now we have gone through the four steps. We've written a eulogy. We've clarified the milestones on the way to that eulogy. We have audited ourselves and how we can participate in taking that path forward. And we've met with someone or we've set at least set up that meeting to discuss those vices and virtues and the goals we have. Now, I recommend doing this exercise again in a couple of weeks. And the reason is that this is very common. This happens so much. It happens even as I do these, these podcasts. Once you say something, if you sit on it, come back to it and review it, you will disagree with some of the things you said or the, the things you wrote. You will write out 
a milestone or you'll put something in your vices or virtues, you'll come back in a couple of weeks and go, I could have written that better. Uh, I could have, or really this is what's at the heart of that problem, or this is the gift that I really think I have. You can be more clear. So don't be shocked if a couple of weeks from now you happen to see that eulogy or you happen to see something and you go, what was I even thinking? Uh, why was I even writing that? Because that's not really what I want. And what I really want is, and that is a normal moment and it is an update and just write it again, go through your, this four steps again. Uh, and frankly, if you're meeting with someone once with this, the reality is you should be meeting with them more than once. So if you're not already planning on meeting with that, that fourth step person, uh, more than once, they're probably not the person you want to meet with. So do that again, eulogy, milestones, vices, virtues, meeting and repeat it. Maybe give it a couple weeks or even a couple months, depending on who you are and how quickly you want to adjust this stuff. But that will be extremely powerful because you will start to hone in on what you really want and what you really should be doing. And as you get more focused on what's important to you, on what's important to others and what needs to stay and go in your life to get that meaningful life, things will start to change. And I want to warn you beforehand, people don't do this. This is probably the first time you've ever heard of an exercise even like this. Very, very few people really go through something so involved. So if you're willing to do this, if you got all the way to the end of this episode and you followed along or you're planning on doing the exercise later, just know that this will stand you out. It will set you apart from other people and you might not get uh, the response you're looking for. You might get some funny looks. Hey, uh, you know, I did this exercise and I wrote down all the problems I have with myself and all the things I'm good at. And they might say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's self-abusive or even that's it's kind of arrogant to write down the things you're good at or better at, at than other people. That's not true. If people would dismiss you or even bully you for trying to do a good job at life, for trying to have a meaningful life and make things that are important to you and the people around you, then I would encourage you to just consider the amount of time you spend around them and try to limit that. And at least don't share so much with them. If that's their response, then definitely you want to check whether or not they're really your friend or they have your best interests in mind. A true friend will hear you saying that and say, good on you. I know you've got good things in you and I'm sick of seeing things get in your way and I'm glad you're on this path. And if I can help you in some way, or maybe I can't, but whatever it is, I'm glad you're doing this. That is how you vet those true friends. So if you start getting weird looks or weird responses that you've done this, or you recommend this to someone else because it's helped you and they kind of laugh and scoff at you, don't be shocked. This is not an exercise for the masses. This is an exercise for people who want to grow. And with that, we are done. That is the resilience roadmap. You have started a journey and it's too late to go back now. Now that you have paid attention to these things, you will never forget them. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you like this and it's helped you, I do encourage you to pick some people in your life that you think could benefit from this also and share the roadmap with them. Tell them to go to trainhealthycops.com under the resources tab and download the resilience roadmap. Thank you for your time. I'll see you on the next episode. If this podcast helped you, it'll probably help someone else. 
If you would, share it with someone you know. And if you want to share it with people you don't know, you can take five seconds and leave a review and five stars. It helps tremendously. Thank you.